the fire within podcast you need a sustainable plan the right mindset and the knowledge and inspiration to stoke the fire within just like the phoenix you can burn your old habits never turn back and emerge completely anew there are no shortcuts welcome fire within nation this is the fire within podcast where we dive into all things nutrition fitness and health related i'm your host brandon woolley joined by my co-host joe woolworth welcome joe and I'm extremely excited about today's guest. Her name is Dr. Susan Lavelle, and let me give you a few reasons why I'm so excited. She's been featured in the Huffington Post on the TV show, The Doctors, Lifetime, and Forbes magazine. She's one of the few people I've met in my life where I 100% back, endorse, and agree with everything she says and does. She's a former professional ballerina, was a plastic surgeon for 22 years, and a lifelong health nut. She's always been passionate about helping people heal and transform their bodies, minds, and spirits so that they can live the vibrant lives they want and deserve. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much. Yeah. To start off with, tell us a little bit about your business, what you do, and uh, then we'll get into the the good details of, of your life. Perfect. So as you mentioned, I was a plastic surgeon for 22 years and loved it. I mean, loved making those transformations throughout the entire, you know, the my entire career. But I started having some health issues myself. And what ended up happening was that I ended up looking towards functional medicine to heal myself. And so I then I started looking and realized that what I really wanted to do was to help people heal from the inside out as opposed to changing them from the outside in. Perfect. Well, this is a good show for that. One of my one of my taglines is transforming your, your life from the inside out. So I like it. Exactly. Um, now, before we get into that, you start off as a ballerina. Yes, actually, um, I went into dancing when I was about four or five years old. And the way that happened was that I used to watch television, you know, and cartoons on Saturday mornings, and I would be there all day, all day, all day in the morning. And my mother came in one day, she says, that's the end of this, you're doing something else on Saturday. So she took me to a dance class. And that grew into a professional career for 17 years where I traveled the world. So you weren't just like doing this on stage for a community theater. This was like professional. No, it was, it was real. I got paid. Wow. <laughs> what company were you with? I was with the Dance Theater of Harlem from actually when they first started until uh, 1977. Then I was with the Atlanta Ballet and the Princeton Ballet and the Glefsky. So several different companies and travel, as I mentioned, around the world with them. Wow. I think I could do a tendue. That's about it, which is similar to fondue, but, um, or maybe not at all. So is it true what they say about like your feet being all kinds of crushed and crazy? Oh, my feet were ugly. <laughs> they, yeah, they were, they were pretty, pretty rough. And, uh, there were a couple of times when I had a broken toe and didn't even realize it till years afterwards when I got an x-ray for something else. And they would say, yo, you had a broken toe there. And I didn't even really, you just danced through the pain. Oh, so, wow. yeah, yeah. That's I thought that, that they don't really do anything for a broken toe, right? They're just like, yep, it's broken. Yeah. They tape it yeah. to yeah. another toe, right? Yeah. Buddy <laughs> system. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's like that the pain was just the pain. So it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. How did you end up going from ballerina to plastic surgery? Actually, believe it or not, I wanted to be a physician when I was six years old. And the reason was I fell in love with my pediatrician. I saw him a lot because I had a lot of tonsillitis. So I used to tell people that whenever I didn't want to go to school, I would just say my throat hurt because my throat was always red. Anyway, I loved my pediatrician. And I told him when I was six that I was going to be a doctor. And he told me when I was ready 
to come back and he would help me. Well, 20 years later, I went back. He remembered me. He was still in practice. He wrote me a letter, and I think that had a lot to do with me getting into medical school. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, I knew back then I was going to be you know, a physician, but then the dancing thing, you're, you're traveling the world. So when you're 17 years old, you could either be in a classroom or you could be traveling to Europe. Now, which one would you choose? <laughs> <laughs> Europe. So, you know, I did the dancing until the dancing got to where it just hurt too much to do anymore. And I started thinking more about medical school. So I started applying, uh, took the courses I needed and applied and got into Columbia University in New York. Now, what drew you to plastic surgery of all the fields of medicine? So in medical school, I knew I wanted to do general surgery. You rotate through various rotations, and I knew I wanted to do surgery. So I actually was in the Columbia University five-year program. I was one of the uh, three women my year out of five people, and that was very unusual. They had never even taken a woman before for the full five-year. And my thing, they took three of us. And it turned out that they did it because they thought maybe that we were going to drop out, but we didn't. So um, in general surgery, you actually rotate through all of the subspecialties. And the subspecialty before plastics was vascular. This was sick people. They were diabetics. They had a heart disease. I mean, they were sick, sick people. The surgeries we were doing were tough. They often didn't work. Um, And it was just sad. And then my very next rotation was plastics. And plastics, all the patients were happy, they were healthy, and I said, that's what I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Now, uh, when you hear plastics, can, can you tell us more? Like, I, I'm envisioning, like, plastic in a container. <laughs> what, what does uh, the plastics and plastic surgery actually mean? It, yeah, it doesn't mean that container. What it does, it came from a Greek word that means plastikos, and that means transmoving tissue. And so what plastic surgeons do is they move tissue from one place to another. As a matter of fact, the first kidney transplants were done by plastic surgeons, and oh. then it got then they became done by by transplant. So, surgeons. so more of the word like plasticity in the ability exactly. to shape. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Ah, I never looked it up. That's yeah. good to know. <laughs> now you know. Yeah. You so you did that for a while, and now you're more into homeopathy. Tell us a little bit about the transformation from plastic surgery into homeopathy and why. Okay. In plastic surgery, I was in New York City. That's where I had trained, and I opened up my first practice there. And then nine eleven hit. And uh, the whole city changed. And I really didn't want to live there anymore with my kids. I was raising kids at that point. And so we moved to Northeast North Carolina. Now, while I was in New York, I had a big team, you know, so if I was doing a case that was six to eight hours, I could take breaks, you know, I could take some time off and it was, was pretty good. When I went down to Northeast North Carolina, I was the only plastic surgeon. So that meant that these six, eight, 10 hour cases was me alone. And then since nobody really knew plastics, even after the case, I was the one staying up all night to watch them, you know, to make sure that everything went well. So um, talk about fatigue. (laughs) Um, The other thing was that I hadn't pretty much eaten very healthily when I was up in New York. When I moved down there, there was fried chicken and biscuits, and I just went whole hog and gained about 35 pounds, which on me was a lot of weight because I'm, I'm pretty short. So those two things together um, ended up with me having both adrenal and thyroid issues um, and where I just was totally fatigued. And the only way I got out of it was my body finally said, I've had enough. And the way it said that was I had three blood clots in my legs that went to my lungs 
um, the each time I was in the intensive care unit, and that third time I almost died. And yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. That would do it. And so I, at that point, I finally said, "Okay, it's time for me to start taking serious look at my health." And so at first, the only thing that I could do was to change what I ate. And so I started eating more healthily. And then I started changing how I moved. I added yoga. I added qigong. Um, and that opened up the spiritual aspect. And eventually I found my unique way of healing. And then that's what I brought into Premier Wellness. Ah, that's, that's an incredible story. Now, what was the time period of moving here and getting to the point where you've put on 35 pounds and you're experiencing blood clots? That was about six years. That's about six years. I didn't move and, you know, three months later I was in a mess. It really took all of that time of eating poorly and also stressing myself out. You know, I was the solo practitioner. And so if I didn't go to work, if I didn't do the case, if I didn't see the patients, it didn't get done. And so I continued to push myself that way until I could no longer push myself. Now, while we're on that subject, for some of our listeners that have, maybe they're nurses, maybe they're on their feet for 8, 12 hours, what are some strategies where they can prevent some of these issues and blood clots and things like that? Yeah, actually, that is an excellent point. And I think part of what the issue was with me developing these blood clots was that I was a surgeon. And as I mentioned, some of these cases were six, eight, 10 hours long. So you're just standing there on your feet up without doing anything for, for a long period of time, and which can predispose you to these clots. Um, afterwards, I learned that I needed to wear a compression hose, which helped. Um, and then all throughout the cases, I continued to move. And so I went back to my dance, you know, my dance history. And so I would dance. And so they used to call me the dancing doctor. I'd have music on the entire case and we would just continue to move the entire, the entire time. So step, bump, step, bump, bump, scalpel. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's perfect. No, that, that's good. Uh, Cause I, you know, a lot of my friends and, and people I've worked with in the past, uh, especially nursing always comes to mind and they're always talking about 12 hours on their feet. Um, now, at least they get to move around, but uh, maybe a dentist or a dental hygienist or something, they're standing in one place. You figured out that nutrition needed to change. You brought in the you know meditation, yoga, qigong aspect. Now, a couple of times on the show, I, refu- I referred to you as uh, being into homeopathic. Uh, I was incorrect. Uh, it's functional medicine. So can you tell us uh, what the differences are between the practices? Absolutely. So functional medicine is actually um, concerned with finding the root cause of whatever's going on. Um, So in other words, if somebody's a diabetic, rather than just saying, here, take this pill or take this shot of insulin, we're going to figure out why you have the tendency, why you have developed diabetes at this time. And a lot of times you can actually cure or reverse, I won't say cure, but you can reverse those symptoms. So you may not need to take medication um, of that sort. So that's what functional medicine is all about. And we do that through lab work, through, um, you know, through stool testing, through very specialized things. It's looking at it that way in a complete history. Homeopathy, and I do use some homeopathy in my practice. Homeopathy is using very, very dilute um, uh, dilutions of a particular substance that will then help to train your body to, to heal. Kind of like adaptogens and things like that? or um, So what's an example? Um, one of the things that I use in a weight management program that I have is something that has very, very dilute thyroid within it. So, I mean, you, you take it and you, you cut that 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times. So some people say that there's actually nothing in it at all except the essence of what it started out as. Now, when you say there's thyroid in it, you know, I think of TSH, T3, T4. Uh, what do you mean by thyroid in it? Well, thyroid gland, uh, the thyroid hormone, things of that sort. And with this more diluted approach versus giving a stronger dose, what, what is the benefit to that? So one would be treating the actual, say, deficiency. So if someone is, is hypothyroid and they have a low T3 or T4, so T3 is the, the hormone that's actually active, um, if you're giving them the actual hormone, you're going to give it in a dose that's going to be high enough for their levels to actually rise. With, a, say, a homeopathic solution, you're not expecting it to rise because of the actual amount that's there. It's the training of the body of the thyroid to heal itself to then put out. Oh, the that makes sense. Exactly. So kind of like how, you know, I would advise my clients not to chronically supplement with melatonin because it could right. downregulate their body's ability exactly. to use exactly as opposed to encouraging natural melatonin production through, you know, light cycles and uh, relaxation and things like that. Exactly. Okay. Now, now I got it. All right. So, so back to your practice, um, within functional medicine, what are some of the, the kind of subcategories that, that encompass that? Okay. With, with me in particular, I work mainly with women, entrepreneurs, leaders, um, those women who are just kind of stressing themselves out. You know, people, they say you go into medicine to help the people that you were. <laughs> and so um, people who are stressed out doing everything for everybody else and who are really just kind of surviving on caffeine and willpower. And when I say that to the right person, they know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. So, so these are the people and the things that they usually come to me about is they want to lose some weight. They want to drop a dress size or so. They want more energy. They want to be able to wake up in the morning with energy and not be tired. Um, they want their hormones to be in order. So if they have thyroid or adrenal issues, they want those to be helped. They want to sleep better, you know, and they want their relationships to be, to be good. That's yeah. really kind of it. Now, uh, if somebody wanted to start with you, what would this process look like? I actually offer a free discovery call. And the reason I do that, a breakthrough call. And the reason I do that is because it's important to know, number one, what they want, but also to know whether the, the two of us can work together well. And so we literally will sit down, they'll do a little short um, questionnaire about what they're looking for. And we will sit down and talk for about 25, 30 minutes to see if we are a good fit both ways. Then once we do that, then I come up with a customized program for them. So there's no real set program per se. It really depends on where they are, what their lab work looks like, um, how involved they want to get, and how fast they want it to, to go. There are some people who want to, you know, they like the, the people who want to lose weight fast. You know, they want it done fast. But then there are some people like an autoimmune condition, say like Sjogren's or a Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is very common right now. That can take weeks to months to almost up to a year to reverse. Well, it's exciting that, that you have seen success reversing this with functional medicine. You're actually allowing the body to figure out how to do it on its own, um, which is a longer process. Yes, it can be. It can yeah. be. But then again, you know, the, 
one thing that one of the other things that kind of shoved me, I should say, into functional medicine was um, even when I was eating well and living well and doing pretty much what I should be, I then developed a full body rash that was ridiculously itchy. They put me on high dose steroids. All that had me do was bouncing off walls, literally bouncing off walls. And, uh, you know, then I is when I really found the functional medicine person. They found out I was sensitive to eggs. I stopped eating eggs. They healed my gut. Two weeks later, I was better. So sometimes it can be very, very quick. It really depends on what's causing the yeah. issue. Now, talking about food sensitivities, that's different than an allergen. Um, how would you describe the difference between a sensitivity and an allergen? And maybe elaborate on what kinds of health changes could you expect if you're able to identify things you're sensitive and don't have an outright allergy to? Okay. So when people ask me that, do you, you remember the movie Hitch with... Um, oh, yeah. Great movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Will how Smith. I learned how to dance. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> you stay right here. You stay right here. Yeah. <laughs> so you remember that scene where Will Smith eats and his whole face just yeah. blows up? Yeah. Well, that was like a comedy, but that is what happens when someone's when someone is severely allergic to something. They, they swell, their neck can swell. It's really a medical emergency. So that's one aspect. My husband is allergic to shellfish. He sometimes he can't even go into a restaurant where they're cooking shellfish, say on a grill, because that smell will will make it so that he can't breathe. On the other hand, there's something that's called a sensitivity, and these are usually called by caused by something called leaky gut, and I can, we can go into that in a little bit too if you want. But what happens is that the body sees something over and over again. Like with me, it was eggs. I loved eggs, and so I ate them a lot. Well, with a leaky gut, that that antigen, that little, um, say, we'll just say little pieces of egg <laughs> were being presented to and getting through the, the wall of the intestine and our, my bloodstream was seeing it. Well, white blood cells, which can attack things that they see as invaders, were then attacking that. That makes inflammation. It can go anywhere. And in me, the inflammation turned out to be a rash. So that's the difference between a, a sensitivity and it can be any, a sensitivity can be anywhere. So it may not affect your gut. Like with me, it was my skin. It was a rash. Other people, it can be a headache. It can be joint pain. It can look like anything. Wherever that inflammation goes is where the symptoms go. Yeah. It's funny that uh, it was eggs for you. I had a, I don't remember if it was an IgG or an elitist test, but uh, I had a sensitivity to eggs and I ate six eggs every morning without fail every day of the week for about three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I was getting to the point where I had inflammation, I couldn't lose weight and I'm a personal trainer and I'm doing all the things right. And uh, I think that was a big component of it. Uh, and I think what makes food sensitivities tough for people to conceptualize is it's not their stomach typically that hurts. It's, it's these outward symptoms. And my understanding of leaky gut is, is uh, you know, your small intestines is, is that's your immune barrier. And as things penetrate through, um, that's when we have this inflammation and these attacks. And, and oftentimes skin is one of the first places mm -hmm. we'll see something. Mm -hmm. um, so you also mentioned headaches and, and things like that. Um, now if, um, if somebody doesn't have access to a food sensitivity test or something like that, uh, what are some ways our, our listeners could identify a potential, uh, food sensitivity? The gold standard is really an elimination diet and it takes a while, but essentially what you're doing is you eliminate, um, you, you can literally eliminate almost most of the, the top allergens like egg and corn and wheat. Those are some of the big ones, dairy. Um, and then after symptoms may resolve, then you add them back. 
slowly, one by one, and you see what responses are. If you don't want to do the full-blooded you know, elimination, what you can do is just keep a food diary, something as simple as a food diary. Write down what you eat and your symptoms for the next 24, 48 hours because it can take that long for things to respond. Yeah, two, two to three days is, is kind of uh, what to expect. So um, I would often try and anytime I had a client come in and like, uh, I had this massive headache and I couldn't sleep. I would first thing, what did you eat yesterday? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we could trace it back to, to something they were eating. Um, and as soon as we cut that food out, um, now sometimes it's harder to find. Uh, and that's where blood work is great because it can really pinpoint it. Exactly. Um, now, I'm, I'm a big, uh, pro, you know, I, I really advocate for blood work. Uh, I think it's one of the most transformative things I saw. Uh, when I started out as a trainer, I wasn't even doing the nutrition piece. We were just working out. And I'm like, you know, they're doing everything they're supposed to do in the gym. Why aren't they reaching their goals? Oh, nutrition. So I started diving deeper into that. Um, and now I was really starting to see some cool results. But then I got, you know, I worked at Lifetime Fitness at the time and, and we worked with the blood work and people were like literally reversing chronic illnesses. Just incredible stuff. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about how you as a functional medicine practitioner views blood work different than your typical doctor? Okay, that's a that's a great question. Um, and so, for instance, when you go to your doctor and you get your results back and they tell you everything's fine. Well, sometimes you may bring that very same blood work to me and I'll look at it and I'll go, that's not so fine. And the reason for that is the reference range that we have for a normal, whatever the blood test is, is very wide and it holds a lot of disease within that. So it's taking a very wide a number of people and then making an average. Normally, um, we want something that's in a much narrower range because we want optimal levels, not just okay levels. You know, our average is not great. We want to be optimal. And so that's the main difference. So how can you diagnose from somebody's blood work? Some of these, cause I'm just sitting here listening as a, as a layman, like I'm basic Joe over here and thinking like, Joe I would have just looked for some kind of cream if I had a rash. I would have <laughs> never thought eggs. Like that wouldn't have been my first thought. And, um, so how do you use blood work to deduct that kind of, because you kind of feel to me like your house, like you're like, oh, I know what it is. And you know, they would zoom in on that show house into the body and it'd be like, oh, look, there's a screwdriver caught in the colon, you know, something that you never think it would be, you know? <laughs> so how do you diagnose uh, things like that through blood work? Yeah. So um, going back to my rash, I, I like I said, you know, I, I tried some creams, I tried the steroids and all of that didn't work. And so we looked at routine blood work and there still wasn't anything in that. So we went a step further and started looking at specialty labs. So there you can go even further out of what you would normally get when you go to your physician for your for your routine fit, you know, for your routine uh, fitness exam. But with um, say, let's take uh, diabetes, for instance. If unless you have, you're doing a, a fasting blood sugar and unless it's above 100, they're going to say you're not diabetic. However, what if, you know, two years ago, your fasting blood sugar was 80, then the next year it's 90, then the next year it's 95. So you are trending upwards. So in functional medicine, what we're going to look at is, whoa, this person is trending upwards. Next year, they are going to be over 100. Why are we going to wait till they're over a hundred to start treating them? And so that's, that's the main difference. Yeah, that's a, that makes sense. I think that's a much better approach. I, I think personally that functional medicine is going to be the way of the future just because it does work. Um, people change, they change their lives. They get off medication. 
they stop their chronic illnesses. Yeah. Now to, to, um, you know, big pharma's credit, there are, uh, clients out there who aren't willing to make the necessary changes for functional medicine to work. Um, and then they're facing, well, do we keep telling them the right way and there's no action and let them die? Or can we give them some sort of pharmaceutical intervention so that they can enjoy time with their loved ones? And so, so I think it is a two way street oh, um, to, to their credit. And I'm glad they're there. I mean, they've saved my life twice doing stupid marathon stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly not anti-doctor and I don't want to uh, come across that way. Oh, I um, hope not. <laughs> yeah. But for those that are willing to invest in their health and functional medicine is just absolutely incredible and life changing. Changing. Absolutely. Yeah. And then and I agree with you about some patients are just not willing to make those changes. For instance, you know, when I was in the hospital, we would have um, patients who had had amputations because of their smoking, or they'd have a tracheostomy because of their smoking, and they'd have a cigarette in their trach. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, so yeah. some people just won't. Yeah, so I think there there could be a coexisting healthy balance of both. Um, now, uh, I have a bunch of questions about stool testing. Ooh. <laughs> so microbiome health is huge now, as yes. it should be. Yes. Um, I, I know it's not something that got a lot of attention up until the last, I don't know, decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only know, you know, a little bit about it. And, you know, I share with with uh, my free ebook on my website about uh, making sure to have fermented foods and as many different types of vegetables because the prebiotic fibers can help with dysbiosis and crowd out the sugar loving types. Um, but you having a, uh, M- you're an MD. Yes. Uh, I know you have a much deeper depth of knowledge on this. So can you tell us um, a little bit about integrating uh, microbiome knowledge uh, and, and what these stool testing can help with? And I'll just let you take it from here. Okay. So as you were mentioning, the microbiome is, is like really in the news at this point. And what that is, is all of the bacteria, the viruses, the parasites, the, the worms, yes, anything that is in your, in your gut. And believe it or not. Wait, there's worms in our guts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh. Um, like in a normal gut? Or is that just no, like, no, okay, not in right. a normal one. But all that other stuff, yes, yes, for the most part. Um, and what we don't realize is that really the bacteria in our gut almost run our lives more so than we do. There are a whole lot more bacteria and other organisms in our gut than we have cells in our body. Um, they make our vitamins. They make things like our, like our serotonin, which controls our mood and how we sleep and our energy. I mean, they, they do a lot that we don't that we don't even are aware of. And so when they're not in the right balance, um, that's what could be called a a dysbiosis. When they're not in the right balance, then we don't function properly. And so one of the things you can do with um, finding out with your stool is to find out what balance your, your gut is in and then fix it if it's out of that right balance. For once, for instance, one of the things that we even know now in traditional medicine is that there is a particular bacteria called H. pylori, which is responsible for a lot of um, stomach problems and stomach cancer and ulcers. And so it wasn't until we realized that these high levels of H. pylori were causing this illness um, that it really started, I think, becoming more and more mainstream. Um, now, the limited knowledge I do have uh, on it comes largely from Dr. Gundry and Dr. Robin Chutkin. And what shocked me uh, was at the end of the book, uh, uh, Dr. Ch- Robin Chutkin is the microbiome solution, but she's talking about uh, C. diff and, and hospitals and um, 
what they figured out is you could do a fecal transplant and the success rate of killing this deadly disease was like over 90%, uh, which was much far than, than some of the other medical interventions. Um, what other applications are, are there for that? I feel like I just can't let you just get away with saying <laughs> fecal transplant and not have you explain that a little bit more. Are you literally talking about just changing out somebody's poo? Yeah, absolutely. It changes the microbiome of the other person. What in the world? It's pretty wild stuff. I think there was an FMT thing where a fecal matter transplant shake and you get a blender that's dedicated. Anyway, it, it gets, <laughs> check it out. The Microbiome Solution, Dr. Robin, check it. It's, it's a great book though. But, um, you know, what other, uh, you know, they we know it can help cure C. diff. What other applications or not, not even just for a transplant, but even from testing and, and tell us the different types of information we can collect from, from, like from testing. Um, so what it will tell you is number one, how the opportunistic bacteria are, as well as the commensal. So opportunistic is just what it sounds like. Those are the bacteria that are going to get in there and cause trouble if they can, you know, opportunity opportunistic. Then we have the commensals. Those are the bacteria that are supposed to be there in normal levels. And if they're not, like for instance, some of the um, probiotics that you may, may have heard of are lactobacillus. It may be pretty, yep. pretty familiar. Um, so we're supposed to have lactobacillus. And if we don't have enough levels, there's another one that's bifidobacter. If we don't have those two in the proper levels, we either may have constipation or diarrhea or bloating. or So in other words, even the ones that are, are supposed to be there need to be in the right proportion for us to have our ultimate health. It can tell us about viruses. It can tell us about um, whether or not there's fat in our stool. It can tell us about, yes, those worms that <laughs> could possibly <laughs> be in there. Yeah. Um, so how yeah. would you boost the levels? Is that like by diet? By diet, but also um, through, you can use probiotics as well. Imagine starving out the bacteria you don't want there. Exactly. So they have a chance to populate. Exactly. Yeah. So that's when you were talking about lowering sugar. Um, candida is another big one. And so you want to make sure that, especially candida loves, it loves sugar and wine. So you really want to make sure that, you know, if, if you do have candida, you may have to just back, well, not may have to, you need to back off of those things until you heal. Now, what kinds of symptoms might you see from a client to warrant, uh, hey, we really want to do a, a stool test? Stool test. Um, if they're still having uh, gastrointestinal issues, so diarrhea, constipation, bloating, gas. Um, IBS in general. IBS, yeah. exactly. Any of those symptoms. But even if, you know, even if it's not necessarily uh, abdominal related, if we looked at their regular lab work and we still don't have the answers, we may want to look at a stool test anyway. Just as I mentioned before, if you're, um, for instance, if you're not sleeping well and your, um, uh, you know, your mood is off, um, you, it may be your serotonin and your serotonin is controlled by your gut. And so you may have an issue going on in your gut that may be controlling how you're sleeping, how your mood is and uh, so forth. Yeah. So for our listeners, so serotonin is kind of the feel good hormone. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is 90% of it is produced in the gut yes. and only 10% in the pineal gland in the brain. And I think for a long time, we thought it was the opposite. Exactly. Um, so what you eat uh, literally can help with anxiety, depression, your mood uh, and other things as so, well. So comfort food is a real thing. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except comfort food usually is not going to help not you too much. that kind of comfort food. Right, yeah. right. It's actually it's, going the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah I, I call it that. Well, the many people call it the sad diet, the standard American diet. Yep. And it is sad. It really is. Yeah. I was thinking earlier, and I didn't say it because you were in the middle of a serious question, but like, can I be a donor? Can I be like a poo donor? Can I well, put that on my driver's license? Like, no. I'm willing to do that for people because no, I'm a caring, kind person. You know, it's, it's, funny, you, it's funny you said that. Um, so if somebody does have C. diff, you do have to find a healthy donor for this transplant to happen. I actually had a close friend whose father uh, was in the hospital with C. diff, and, um, you know, they wanted to give it one chance to fix. But usually what happens is it becomes recurrent. Mm-hmm. And if C. diff keeps recurring, uh, chances of death are imminent. Yeah. And that's when you really want to consider something like a transplant. But I actually offered to be a donor. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to. He he got better. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't really know what that process is like. I imagine it's something like an enema. <laughs> but um, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. I'll refer to uh, anybody else who wants to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but, man, this is a crappy conversation. <laughs> And we can really go downhill with the puns from here. Mm. <laughs> and we're out of control here. All right, so the next thing I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, you've had your personal transformation and, um, and we know that what drives you is helping other women in similar situations. Now that you've done all this, you've become successful, you're helping other people do the same things that you were able to do. Can you think of any times in your life where you took shortcuts to try and increase your health that didn't pan out in the long run or weren't sustainable? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to say that probably the worst thing was when I was dancing. Because I had to be, you know, when I was about 100 pounds, I was considered fat as a dancer. Um, And so, yeah. (laughs) And so I did pretty much anything you can imagine to stay that weight. Um, Yes, I was dancing six to eight hours a day, but uh, it meant I was eating mostly salads. If I was eating something that that wasn't, you know, anything more than a salad, I would use diuretics. I would use... um, um, you know, laxatives to make sure that I that nothing stayed within me. And I would imagine this is pretty standard in the industry. It is, unfortunately. Now, do you think there's been any improvements in that, or do you think it's still? I've been out for a while, but I can't. I I I would say probably not. Wow. Not. Is there a lot of drug use in the industry as well? Uh, not really. No, because you can't, at least, let me see. I've been out for how many years now? <laughs> Close to 40. At least in my time, there really wasn't because you couldn't be that much of a drug person and dance the same day. You, know, yeah. you just couldn't. Only not a health thing. Yeah. You don't normally, yeah. they don't normally go yeah. together. Yeah. But a lot, of, a lot of dancers would smoke. And as I mentioned, a lot of them had really, really poor health habits that way. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, now that you are healthy and thriving, what are some of the daily habits that you feel have a compounding effect in your life? Okay, so my routine starts in the morning. Um, It starts with me getting up, and I usually get up about two hours before I need to leave the home. And the reason I do that is I, you know, first do some meditation, um, do some visualization. I may or may not write. Um, and then I walk my dogs and that's at least a half hour, sometimes an hour. So that's, that's my morning, go to work. Uh, and I try to do throughout the day, try to continue with snacks since I have the founder sitting right next to me most of the day. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, we, we do our snacks throughout the day, but if I don't, I really want to make sure that I'm getting up throughout the day. And we'll talk more about that in the next episode. She doesn't mean like eat snacks. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) So just 
real quick uh, for the listeners who haven't heard that episode, yes. uh, can you tell us in a brief summary what Snacks is? Snacks are were actually developed by David Allen. They are short, nuanced, actionable exercises. Snacks, and what they are is that through you know what what we saw was actually what he saw was that people were sitting at a computer all day long, you know, and getting wider and wider. And as we all know, uh, sitting is the new smoking. So. He started doing small, short exercises throughout the day, which kept him moving. And he actually noticed himself losing weight, getting more fit. Um, So rather than saying you have to be in the gym, you know, for an hour and then you sit the rest of the day, which makes absolutely no sense. Do the movement throughout the day and do some, you know, do some work in the gym as well. And you'll actually do a lot better. Yeah, it has a compounding effect. Uh, So guys, be sure to check out episode five when it comes out. Um, all right. So you do your snacks at mm-hmm. work and, um, and then eating. And so for me, I usually breakfast is, um, I usually do some, my intermittent fasting in the morning. So a lot of the times I will have either a mushroom coffee or, um, you know, a shake with some MCT oil in it. And I try to kind of fast until noon. Noon, I will have leftovers and leftovers are, are usually going to be whatever protein and, and vegetables I had from the night before. Um, I may or may not have, have a piece of dark chocolate. I'm not going to say. And uh, <laughs> I, I recommend that to my clients daily. Yeah, it is uh, good Especially stuff. if it's over 70%. I'm dark, there. dark. Dark yes, Exactly. And then dinner's pretty much the same thing. So, um, and then I try to finish eating by seven. That doesn't always happen depending on what my schedule is. But I have noticed that for myself, when I eat later, I don't sleep as well. So I try to really kind of finish eating. And then I again in the evening, I do another meditation, do some journaling and try to turn things off at least a half hour to an hour before I go to bed. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, <laughs> so that is, that's pretty much the perfect day. Um, so I just wanted to touch on a couple of these. So let's start with the meditation in the morning mm-hmm. and there's lots of forms of meditation and we understand it helps lower blood pressure. It could turn off that fight or flight response, which it's awesome. If you could start your day without that, that'll mm-hmm. stop that slow drip of cortisol and break mm-hmm. down a muscle tissue and adrenal issues. Mm-hmm. What is your meditation practice look like? Just a very brief summary. It varies. It really varies. Some mornings, um, you know, it will be, I'll listen. I like the Intuit Timer. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular app. Um, They have thousands of different types and lengths of of meditations. And so sometimes I'm doing just straight music and I'm doing my own thoughts within, you know, like if I'm, if I'm working on something in particular in my life, I may concentrate on that. Other times I may want something that's specifically for energy or strength or whatever. And so I may listen to a guided meditation. Sometimes I will listen as I'm walking because you can meditate while you're walking as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I often do that when I walk my dog. Exactly. And uh, speaking of which, having a dog increases your microbiome uh, complexity. It can help with your immune system. And uh, having a dog means you have to walk in the morning. You do. So you're getting uh, one of the most beneficial times for different UV rays of the sun for circadian rhythm and vitamin D. And so uh, buy a dog, guys. (laughs) Um, Or two. Or two. Oh, wow. Um, So it's it's so funny. It's like everything I've ever told a client wrapped up into your daily routine. Uh, Then you mentioned mushroom coffee. So like Rishi, maybe something like Four Sigmatic. Yes. Or 
I actually use a brand that has a blend. So it really is adaptogenic. So it's got the ones, it's got the reishi, it's got the cordyceps, it's got lion's mane. So all of these different things are doing, you know, whatever my body needs at that particular time is what I'm getting. And in layman's terms, what's an adaptogenic and why do we want those? Adaptogenic. So for instance, let's talk about cortisol. Cortisol is our, one of our stress hormones. And if it's high, we can get very excited. It can be, um, we may have difficulty sleeping, et cetera. So an adaptogen would help to lower your cortisol. Um, if it was high, but if it was low, it's actually going to bolster it and help raise it. So it's one of those almost miraculous uh, substances that does what your body needs it to do. Awesome. I have never heard of mushroom coffee. I'm just over here looking it up. You said you use four sigmatic. Well, that's just a brand I'm familiar with. Yeah. Um, but yeah. um, what is, is that? It? Is that the? I, I need. I use new roast. New yeah. roast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does it taste like? Does it taste like? Oh, coffee? it's good. Does it tastes like cream yeah. and mushroom soup. Like I'm so. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a coffee flavored cream and mushroom soup? Because <laughs> that doesn't sound bad. No, yeah. <laughs> I mean I would try it. No, they, 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 the brand that I use actually has um, some new ones out that I love. One is caramel pecan, and oh, the wow. other one is hazelnut, and they are awesome. So yeah, yeah, they they taste really good. Who comes up with a shiitake? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, and then you mentioned uh, you try and fast for a little bit. Yes. Um, yes. So, so uh, tell us a little bit about it, the benefits of either short fasting or intermittent fasting, you know, with blood sugar and insulin and adaptogen. You know, why would we consider if, if our blood? That. Yeah. And that actually was one reason why I started. And uh, a few years ago, one of my blood works start, showed me that I was starting to make that trend upwards. Uh, with my blood sugar and my hemoglobin A1C was kind of right on the border. And my father actually developed diabetes late in life. So I said, no way this is happening. Let me start looking into some of the things that I can actually lower my insulin, lower my um, blood sugar. And one of the things that that was, was uh, intermittent fasting. Um, and when you, when you first start, you wonder like, you know, can I do this? Can I not eat from say eight o'clock the night before until noon the next day? But it, once you get used to it, you start feeling really, really good. And it's, it's not difficult at all. And it starts to lower all of these markers that are associated with, with, uh, prediabetes. Yeah. And, uh, to borrow some of Dr. Gundry's, uh, knowledge, uh, he talks a lot about, uh, how amyloid plaque buildup, uh, starts formulating the brain as a end product of sugars and things. And when we're in deep REM sleep, uh, we have the glymphatic system with a G that basically pressure washes that amyloid plaque. So lowering your risk of Alzheimer's, uh, even diabetes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we eat too late at night, you know, some of the blood is going to digestion and Instead of that glymphatic pressure washing system, getting rid of all that plaque. So, so there's another benefit of, of that kind of intermittent fasting type uh, style of eating. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, do you, feel, um, do you feel different on the days you do eat later when you wake up in the morning? Or Me, just, meaning yeah. what? Like, when I eat, like, let's say you ate too late one night. Do you feel oh. a difference in restoration in the morning oh, or? Absolutely. And I, I say kind of, I'm almost like a, you know, with that expression, the canary in the coal mine or whatever, yeah. where you see something really, really early. And I'm, I'm like that. So if I eat late or if I eat, um, more starch or, or carbs closer to bedtime, when I wake up in the morning, number one, I don't sleep as well. A lot of times I will actually wake up several times during the night 
And then two, when I wake up in the morning, I'm often bloated and I feel heavy because my body literally has not detoxed during the night. Yeah. Um, now a little bit off topic, um, since we're talking about sometimes going a little bit off path, cause you're, you're not supposed to be a perfect, a hundred percent of the time. That's, Heck no. That's, no. <laughs> um, did you go to the state fair and what's your go-to food? <laughs> I did not go to the state fair. However, if I were to go, it would be the turkey leg. I love, yeah. I love those big turkey legs. I, I had one at Bush Gardens and I had all kinds of crap at the state fair. We, we ought to have a, a segment where we do favorite cheat food. That would be fun. Or, or, or what cheat food did I do this week? Uh, maybe that'll, yeah, we should start doing that. That'd be fun. Um, I like buffalo wings, but I feel like I could only eat one because they're so bad for me. You said that. There's a great way to make them. So I have an awesome girlfriend, uh, Michelle. She um, She's trying to adopt all my crazy eating habits, and she knows I love wings. But if you order them out, they're in canola oil and all kinds of garbage, and they're mm-hmm, bad for you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, she told me not to bring any groceries over that she would take care of dinner last night, and uh, she took uh, organic drumsticks, uh, the chicken wings, and she just mixed Frank's Red Hot Sauce with olive oil. And it was the most unbelievable buffalo wings. It was just as good as anywhere else. She baked them. She didn't mm-hmm. fry them. It was just mm-hmm. unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted to fry them, you could use coconut oil um, and do exactly. it on the stovetop. Exactly. So, so you can do them well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, tell us about, uh, you know, a lot of my clients, one of our biggest struggles is stress and sleep and kind of getting restorative good sleep. Can you tell us about your nighttime routine uh, just before bed? Yeah. So um, one of the things I do go to bed on the earlier side. So I start getting ready around 930. I want to be in bed asleep by 1030. And I try to stop looking at my phone and my computer at least by 930, maybe even nine if I can. That doesn't always work, especially if I'm getting home late from a meeting and I need to catch up on some things. But that really is important, just really kind of letting the blue light go as as early as you possibly can. Um, And then the whole slowing down, doing the reading, as opposed to, you know, high energy television or especially the news uh, right before you go to bed. Yeah, that's perfect. Is blue light in television as well? Do they make TVs that have blue light blockers like... Like my phone will switch off and the blue will go mm-hmm. away at mm-hmm. ten thirty. No, no, they they don't write yet. And if you want, though, you can buy glasses. And they used to be they they were orange. You can now get them where the blocking is. You know, it looks like regular glasses, but you're still blocking the blue. Now, one thing to consider, even if you have blue light blockers, um, it may not have any effect on something called flicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so especially LED lights, uh, mm-hmm. they're rapidly turning on and off very, very quickly. We can't perceive it, but that can fatigue us and cause some issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a bad idea to switch to halogen or uh, incandescent bulbs, mm-hmm. and, and that can help with that fatigue. Some, some headaches can be contributed to, uh, by that, and a lot of people don't know it. Uh, so this thing called flicker, maybe we'll do an episode on that too. That makes sense. Well, very good. Um, and then anything else you'd like to add on your habits and things that keep you successful? Um, as you mentioned, you know, it's not a hundred percent that you're going to be a hundred percent. So when I want to go out and do something different or, or, you know, indulge in something that I don't normally do, I do. And I don't beat myself up about it because that's important, but I do then get back on as soon as possible because, um, you know, once you start going down that, that slippery slope, you can, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Oh yeah, for sure. How did you develop that habit? Cause I think a lot of people, once they make a mistake, they're like, screw it. I'm done this month. that's a real thing (laughs) yeah Yeah, well i get i think once you start feeling really good you don't want to feel bad anymore and it's just not worth it 
you know, people, you know, when I, when I was working in plastics, we would have, I mean, literally cakes and cookies and people would bring us stuff all the time. And my staff would ask me, how do you not eat that? And the, the thing is, it, I don't feel good when I do. It's not worth it to me to have something in my mouth for five minutes and then suffer for the next five days. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Now, the last question we always ask our guests, and this is talking directly to the viewers. What are the top three things you would have somebody do to improve their life and reach their health goals? What are the top three? If you could Love that. Um, the first thing that I would do is to have them understand that they are a unique individual and to stop looking at what everybody else is doing, what anybody else is doing, and start listening to their own body. You know, if, if you're eating something and you don't feel right, then I don't care if it's, say, the keto diet, which is huge right now. If you're trying the keto diet and you feel like crap, you know, then, then don't do it. It's not for you. That would be number one. Um, number two would be um, really kind of in that same, that same vein to realize that you are your own doctor that, um, you know, your, your primary care is not that, you know, your aunt, your aunt May is not that you are your own doctor and that you have the responsibility to bring yourself to health the way that you want. And you do that by experimentation really. And by listening to your own body. And uh, let's see, what would number three be? Um, buy a dog. No. <laughs> yeah, buy a dog. <laughs> I like that. No, no I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> but it's a good one. I love dogs. Um, oh, what would the third one be? Uh, that you can be healthy. You know, that you, you do not have to accept feeling crappy. Um, you don't have to accept that. You can feel good and healthy and it is your right and you deserve to feel that way. Awesome. Just awesome. Well, I have to say, um, every single thing you stand for and do is exactly in line. What I would want every one of my listeners, every client I've ever had, I, I don't know that I've met somebody like that before. So well, I thank you. Absolutely. I can't, I can't endorse what you do enough. Um, if anybody is interested in improving their health, um, and thinks they would benefit from, uh, blood work and the functional approach that Dr. Lavelle takes, uh, please reach out. Uh, where can they find you? How can people find you? Um, I'm on my website, which is www.premierwellness.com and premier is spelled P R E M I E R E wellness.com. My phone number is 919 Five nine one zero, and I really would like to invite anyone who can, to any woman I should say, um, who can to come to the retreat next week, November eighth, ninth, and tenth. It'll be in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and information for that is on the website as well. Awesome. Can can you tell us just a quick blurb about the retreat and what all it entails? Yeah. So essentially, it was um, for those same women who you know really burning themselves out to get a chance to step away from their everyday lives. Um, to enjoy some pampering, some gourmet food, um, and uh, but also to determine what it is that is holding them back from having the life that they want. Is it how they're, how they're eating? Is it how they're moving? Is it their mindset? Um, whatever that is, and we're going to have people in various um, departments who will go into these things. And when you when the women come out, they will know. Um, what their best thing, what the best plan for them for the rest of the year is and looking forward into 2020 so that they can have the energy they want, the health that they want and the business that they want. Awesome. I, I wish I was a woman right now. I've never said that before. 
Um, I'm just kidding. But um, no, so anybody interested in that, make sure to check check out their website. Uh, be, feel free to contact Dr. Lavelle uh, through her number, her email, anything like that. Um, yeah, we'll put links in the show notes so you can find the links right there. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show again. Um, any of the clients I work with will certainly be uh, referring to you for, for blood work. Uh, I'm excited to be able to offer that service as well. Uh, but thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you did, uh, go check us out at firewithinnf.com. You can subscribe to our newsletters and make sure you never miss an episode or any other content. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. 